Hello, and welcome to I Think You're Interesting. I'm Todd Vanderwerf, the I, and I Think You're Interesting, and I like to watch animals do stuff. It's one of the things that I always enjoy when I get a, a DVD or an online screener of some new nature documentary. I love to pop it in and you know watch some lions hang out or whatever. But for the last, say, decade or so, probably my favorite nature documentaries have come from the folks at the BBC, who make some of the best television, period. Not just in this genre, but but across all genres. And probably you best know them for Planet Earth and Planet Earth 2, but they also made a show about what's going on under the waves called Blue Planet, and now there's a new sequel to that called Blue Planet 2, which is full of fascinating tidbits, interesting things, little stories about the world. It's one of those things that will turn you insufferable. I was constantly shouting new facts or stories or things that I had seen to my wife. Uh, we're still married. Somehow we worked it out. But I, I I got together with some of the people who made the show. We're doing this, this episode in two different discussions. The first half is with the composers of the show's wonderful music, who include Hans Zimmer, the Academy Award winner, and Coachella headliner. I, I think it's the first time we've had a Coachella headliner on the show. And the second half is with the producers, who will tell you all about how they descended to the bottom of the ocean in a submersible and just hung out there, you know, just, just, just that was their day job, just to get footage from... The floor of the sea. Ah, uh, the job for us all. Anyway, we're going to kick things off with the composers, and then the producers will be around after that. So stick around. I think you're going to like it. My guests today are uh, Hans Zimmer, David Fleming, and Jacob Shea. They wrote the music for Blue Planet Two, which is part of the planet Earth. I, I don't know how they're branding it here. It's very strange, but Blue Planet Two, all about the oceans around the world. Thanks for joining me, guys. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you for having us. Um, I, I kind of want to start uh, with the thing I love about the show is how it captures the sound underwater. And uh, maybe the answer to this will just be no. But d- did you similarly find that inspiring? Like, did you draw when you were composing the music? Did you draw from the like the sound of icebergs uh, crack- crackling by or some of the other noises in here. Don't look at me. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I think that was the that was the challenge was to to try and uh, extrapolate what what using an orchestra or really any musical instrument would sound like to to kind of emulate how oceans and icebergs and things function. Right, and and so we collectively decided to try and and use the orchestra with a, a articulation or, or a set of of ways of playing hmm. um to to kind of emulate this undulating kind of um water texture yeah i think the idea was you know um to try to think of the ocean as a musical character itself sure. Mm-hmm. And you know, rather than just have the instrumentalist play in a in a very straight way, um, uh, to try to create a texture that would replicate that, and sort of you know, without even seeing any visuals, mm. you should you know feel like you're immersed mm. in the environment already. Yeah, yeah. Hans. I mean, the the three of us. I, I think one thing that we definitely have in common is uh, you know ours a fascination with sounds and environments mm-hmm. and, and making sounds and torturing musicians into playing their <laughs> instruments in a way that they've never done before. And 
one of the great things about this project is it, it let us be part of a world that nobody really asks you to do. You know, I mean, the, 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 this, this sonic world of underwater. Mm. Um, I, on the other hand, spent far too much time this year <laughs> with water and being stranded on the beach at Dunkirk. But, <laughs> um, but, but, you know, and I'm trying to answer this question in, in the right sort of way. I think what makes Blue Planet so extraordinary for us is, is that they show us a world that we should know. The 70% of our planet is covered in water. Yeah. And we know next to nothing about it. It's mm. like we are always on the outside. And I think one of the things that these two guys managed to do so brilliantly is to actually get us to go into the water and be under the water and be part of it. I mean, truly be, you know, submerge us in that world. Right. Well, when you were looking at this this footage when it was coming through, were there sounds you were struck by, even if you didn't end up being able to work them into the overall musical compositions? But like, were there sounds from under the water that you were like, wow, that's something I've never heard before and I love it? I mean, definitely the, the sperm oil sequence with the the kind of clicking communication that the that the baby has with its mother mm-hmm. and and the the way that when they go to hunt the the clicks the the clicks that they make become mm. more rapid in succession and uh, that's just a, a level of of communicating that that I I like Han said <laughs> know next to nothing about because it exists in this underwater uh, environment that you know I really don't know very much about and it sure. was it's really remarkable to witness that right right yeah it was amazing to see like you know how much seemed like a conversation you know, even uh, you know, one of the first scenes, these dolphins are are surfing. They're they're doing it purely for play. It's a joyful exercise for them. Yeah. And as they're going through the waves, they're sort of like chirping to each other. And it, it's just at, at first, I'm sure you could you could say like, oh, are they hunting or something? But once you hear them talking to each other in that way. It's so clear that it's just for fun. Mm. And uh, it was just amazing to be able to see that. Yeah. I mean, uh, I kept thinking, especially with that scene, you know, we, we musicians have our own language, which is music, and which I think we think of as an autonomous language. Mm. And mm. Then you suddenly find out that, and musicians, the one thing we have is playfulness. I mean, you play music, and then you see these mm-hmm. animals do the same thing, and and... All we're trying to do is connect the dots. You yeah. know, we are closer to our neighbors than maybe we realize. You yeah, know? yeah. Uh, we sort of think of music for film and television as a solitary thing. Like somebody goes off in a room and writes the music down, then they bring it to the orchestra. But Hans, you have collaborated with a lot of people over the years. What do you enjoy? Because it's a solitary thing. <laughs> otherwise, <laughs> what, like what? Yeah. What do you enjoy about working with people, and how did you three come together to make this score? For me, for me, music has always been about, about that magical process of being with other people in a room. And, you know, you're looking into each other's eyes and somebody picks up an instrument, starts playing, and, whoa, suddenly a profound communication happens. Mm-hmm. And it's fun. Again, I mean, that word play is really important. Mm-hmm. We've known each other for for quite a long time. Um, <laughs> and it it just, I mean... I just think these two are extraordinarily talented. Uh, really, 
just you know, I hope you're blushing, but <laughs> I, I, I just, I, I just, I, 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 I love the talent, the heart, and the musicality they bring to everything. Mm. So it, it was just an obvious thing that they should be part of this. Right. And and really, honestly, I mean, the, the, people are always talking about the collaborative process in filmmaking. And then, as you quite rightly say, there is that, you know, there's the lonely composer, <laughs> just like the lonely <laughs> screenwriter. And I think screenwriting has, well, it sort of, some people write in pairs. But mm, I mean, right. on the whole, it remains this sort of lonely thing. But... Really, honestly, I think life's too short if you can't hang out with a bunch of musicians and make a, no, a decent noise. Mm. And especially when you're being presented with this extraordinary footage and mm. these extraordinary journeys that you're being taken on. Yeah. So suddenly, because you get so involved as well. I mean, it's 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 not like, you know, I think people don't realize that we watch this over and over and it becomes the sort of hypnotizing it becomes hypnotic and it gets under your skin mm. and suddenly you live this life i mean uh, absolutely i turn a bit mm. weird all right yeah. when, when well, i want yeah. a movie which, yeah. <laughs> you all get in a mode yeah I mean, exactly yeah 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 well uh, how did you uh, write this score like did you each come up with individual themes or were you uh, tasked to work on specific footage or did you like see like maybe you saw a sequence and said oh i have an idea for that yeah, I mean, I think we all uh, just when presented with the the material, just sat down together and and really, whatever we responded to innately, mm-hmm. we kind of bookmarked and mm-hmm. and would you know figure out who's taking what later. But but really, it was what spoke to each of us. I think the most profoundly at the initial viewing and just throughout the process, having like Hans was saying, people to 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 play off of and like add you know inform what you're doing in, in your own writing is is really just a, a joyous and it just elevates everything mm. in a way that that working by yourself I, I think you know leave, leaves you not able to do yeah yeah it was always interesting finding out which scenes which of us would respond to mm. Jacob Hans and I and uh, and of course at the very beginning coming up with the the concept of this idea of capturing the water musically mm. was very important. It was really nice to have that touchstone to to go back to, you know. If you ever get stuck in a scene you're you're in the specifics, mm. you can zoom out and think about, well, what are we doing? We're telling the story of the ocean. Right. And I think that was always safe home base to get back to and really brought the project together. Right. Oh yeah, and we had our Radiohead moment. As and the well. Radiohead moment. <laughs> so, yeah. Tell me about that. Yeah, no, 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 because because it it, it was just this. I mean, I'm a huge Radiohead fan. I, you uh, yeah, know, I'm absolutely. A, you know. So, uh, so suddenly this sort of idea came up. Why don't we do something together? Mm-hmm. And it, it was so interesting because once we got together to figure out that you know our that we all had watched the previous Blue Planet forever and it mm. was really influential and that Bloom was um, mm. in, originally inspired by, yeah, you know, totally uh, by David, well, David Attenborough's work. Mm. And p- part of what what I think good filmmaking always does, it opens doors to new connections and new friends and right. new collaborations and therefore new music, mm-hmm. a new way of doing things. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I, I I really think that is one of 
part of the strength of what the BBC is doing with Blue Planet is this because the quality is so great, you mm. can literally phone anybody and anybody and everybody will come running and want to be part of it. Yeah, yeah. And I think that says a lot about, you yeah. know, what all are and the team mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. who are putting their life in danger. And <laughs> no <laughs> so, yeah, you know, And are so, are, so, are so relaxed about the whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> well, when I think of the music of Radiohead, I often think of like, I think of them as like a cinematic band yes. some, mm -hmm. for some reason. Mm -hmm. What is it do you think that makes music? This is maybe too broad a question, but I'd love to hear your thoughts. What makes music cinematic, whether it's pop music, whether it's orchestral music, whether it's whatever? Ooh, I Please. have no idea. Um, <laughs> somebody, I, 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 I think, I mean, I, I, th I don't know. A long gaze. I don't know. I mean, a, you know, a faraway horizon in the mm. music. I, I, I just, um, Heard this interview about the Icelandic pop scene, uh -huh. mm. which I thought was really interesting because the there are only three hundred thousand people in Iceland, and so the the population can't actually support economically <laughs> mm. for you to be a musician. So you have to write for yourself. Mm. You know, the only reason to okay. write to, to become a musician is because you can't help yourself. Yeah, mm. and I think you know, I'm going. Oh yeah, well. I, I think that's why we all became musicians. But, mm -hmm. and I think there is this sort of weird thing. I, I don't know. But, you know, I'm I'm just answering for myself. You sure. know, if you can totally disagree. Mm -hmm. But a lot of it comes from you're just sitting at the edge of the ocean and just staring out, and there is an epicness of, that you want to capture. Either in this case, in what is underneath the surface, mm -hmm. and when it is something about human beings it's the same thing you want to capture the epicness that's underneath the surface yeah you, know, you want to capture the epicness of the story or the soul or the heart or whatever it is the epicness of just you know yeah us this small blue dot in the middle of nowhere yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well maybe maybe starting with jacob here but yeah. like when you were when you are looking at your influences or like when you pick up i feel like Uh, as a writer, I'm yeah. constantly reading stuff that makes me go, "Oh, I want to start writing more like that." Like, what's like, what's what's some music you've heard recently where you're like, "Yeah, I want to, I want to see if I can pull something like that in." You know, what are some interesting Jeez. influences? I mean, one of them is at this table, <laughs> which is Hans. <laughs> uh, oh yeah, okay. yeah, and Dave. Actually, Dave's amazing too. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I, I mean, I think lately, just just recently, I've I've been listening to a bit of. Max Richter and oh, yeah. his approach. And, and it's, there's, I think it, it kind of piggybacks on what Hans is saying about this long gaze and how that kind of pairs well with, with beautiful cinematography or, or kind of this expansive storytelling. It, it, it takes a while to get going and, and in it taking a while to get going, you're kind of invested before you realize it. Right. And, and I've, I've thought that that, That's that's been to answer your question. Something yeah. that I've been listening to. Yeah, David, will you? Well, it's funny that you mentioned uh, writers. I was uh, on vacation recently, uh, reading uh, Paul Bowles, uh, sure. this so, writer. Uh, I didn't know that he was also a composer. Mm. He's studied with Aaron Copeland, so um, I've kind of been diving into his music and oh, wow. just seeing, you know, um, how that worked. How someone who was so immersed in that world, ended up becoming this very prolific writer. What have you been struck by in his, his music? That it's, 
it's not as surprising as his writing. Mm-hmm. I was expecting it to sort of, his writing has this, um, it's got like, you're always on the edge of dread right? when you're reading it, it's, yeah. you know, and I would, I thought, I was expecting the same musically. Yeah. It's really beautiful music, mm. but I would say it's, it's, uh, it's less steeped in that kind of feeling of terror, you know, at, in the pit of your stomach somewhere, you yeah. know, so. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's the most recent thing. I haven't been listening to anything mm. because when I write, I can't listen to anything, mm. and I, my my critical judgment goes completely off the window as well mm. because it doesn't matter what it is; it can be the worst jingle for a commercial. Just because it's finished, I think it's a masterpiece. While I sit there, you know, <laughs> struggling with my notes, um, you know, you know, but there, but there are things I there are things I keep coming. Back to actually, I, I I lied. I did listen to a piece last night, and I don't mean to be pretentious here, but I did <laughs> listen to the second movement of the Shostakovich Piano Concerto just because I had to, because yes. it's so great and yeah. it's so beautiful. And then, I mean, I I have all these different sides to me. You know, I I, I come from classical music. I come from electronica. I have a whole punk history, mm. and you know, mm. so there's an artist. Um, Spanish-French artist called Mano Chao. Mm-hmm. If I ever get a bit down, I just put on a Mano Chao album. Mm, yeah. uh, he could put the pharmaceutical industry for antidepressants out of business. You cannot remain unhappy uh, uh, listening to his music. <laughs> yeah. you know, and then there are other things like all my life I listened to Beethoven because mm. I'm just going, and, and it's always been the same question and I cannot answer it. Mm. How did he do it? Yeah. yeah. So, you know, how did he know? Da, 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 da. Those those simple notes could become this fireworks of yeah. invention. Yeah. 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 Mm. Very irritating. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, to, to sort of just just uh, pivot off that, you mentioned that you've done a lot of work in in other forms of music, punk and electronica and things like that. What do you think having a a conversant knowledge of like all of these different forms helps bring to uh, more traditional orchestral composing. I don't I, look. The, the the great thing is musicians are musicians, yeah. and mm-hmm. and I just, I, look the 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 Dark Knight is a punk score yeah. without a shadow of a doubt, mm-hmm. and and it was just great standing in front of the orchestra and going, "Okay, guys, <laughs> this is going to be a punk score," and them just you know all these classical musicians just completely embracing this and being liberated by this sort of mm-hmm. thing. You know, and, and and figuring out, you know, it's it's it takes a different attitude, mm. and it's not that easy mm. to sort of shed your mm. well-behaved skin. And I, I think, on the whole, I mean, it's it's actually, it's actually been one of the things. I, one of my major concerns in life mm. is sorry, bad non sequitur, but it's not really. Is you know the survival of the orchestras, mm-hmm. and I think it's strictly about making them relevant, keeping, or they are relevant, but right. keeping them relevant. Mm. Yeah. And for instance, I mean, I, I had an interesting year. I managed to take an orchestra and a choir out into the desert and do Coachella with them because I just thought, <laughs> nobody's done that. Take yeah, an orchestra yeah. and a choir and, and, and shove it in front of that sort of an audience. Mm. And, and luckily, my instincts proved right. Mm. Yes, Orchestras are still relevant, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know. And 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 if if we were to lose the orchestra, I think we would lose far more than just this idea of a body of musicians performing together. Yeah, we would lose a, a vast 
chunk of our humanity and our culture. I, I can think of a few better places to listen to an orchestra than the middle of the desert, honestly. That sounds beautiful. <laughs> I, I, was, I was pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> well, you mentioned that you all like to come up with new sounds or come mm-hmm. up with ways to play instruments that will create new sounds. What were some that you came up with for this work that you were particularly excited by? Yeah, well, I think uh, this uh, title orchestra mm. was what we we're calling it. Uh, we, we had orchestral musicians play in a really unorthodox way mm-hmm. and creating this 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 sort of ebbing texture mm-hmm. with strings, with brass, with woodwinds, so that at the end of the day, yes, it's an orchestral score, but we're trying by you know trying to use almost impressionistic mm-hmm. techniques. Mm-hmm we're having them play in a way that maybe for this kind of thing or maybe any kind of thing they haven't done before. Yeah. And of course the idea is always to take it back to, to water and the ocean and how can we make that a sonic character? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm. So I would say that was the, the main instrument that we used. Interesting. Interesting. Well, I, uh, I, I briefly, I, for a while I played uh, piano I gave it up at some point, but I I know enough to know that like, there's a lot of pieces inspired by the ocean because Mm -hmm. the ocean is this vast thing that we all are trying to understand all the time. And like, were there particular pieces of other people's music that struck you as like capturing the ocean, even if you didn't pull them in yourself for this? Yeah. I think it was less about being inspired by other music Mm -hmm. and more. I mean, as soon as you see the visuals, right. You're kind of off to the races Mm -hmm. and I think we drew more from visual art than other uh, other existing music. I did, mean, yeah, go yeah, ahead. Did you were there uh, specific visuals then outside of this that maybe you saw that 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 you had in your head as you were working on it? Well, I think you know Hans mentioned the the pontalistic, like Seurat, mm-hmm. you know, the idea of of tiny points of texture creating right. a larger vision. Right. But yeah, I don't know. Jacob, did you have any specifics? No, I mean, it's it's essentially, yeah. You know, but I think part of, and I think David is really right. You always want to be able to be inspired, not necessarily by somebody else's music, but a parallel piece of art. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just like, Mm -hmm. you know, you were uh, reading Paul Bowles, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and, I think that's where where it comes from. Interesting. The problem is you can you can never find it in somebody else's piece of music, but you can always. Uh, I I don't know. You know, like I look I look at Gerhard Richter paintings. I go, mm-hmm. oh, hang on, look at those colors. How how can I how can I get even close to these colors or this yeah. movement mm-hmm. or something mm-hmm. like this? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean, yes. Plus, you don't get caught in. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Hans, I do have to ask because you have Dunkirk as well, which is your other recent score, which is also, as you mentioned, very influenced by the ocean. So how did you see the ocean functioning in these two projects sonically? Well, in Dunkirk, it is the enemy in Dunkirk. It mm-hmm. is, you know, just over there is England and we can't cross this ocean. Mm. And again, I mean, working collaboratively, which was such a delight with, with Richard King, our sound designer. And Richard would give me amazing tracks off the ocean. And then, you know, I don't know. I think I the, the thing I'm proudest of mm-hmm. about Dunkirk in a funny way is I don't think it has a score. Mm. I think w- what we managed to do is 
that the music and the images are completely fused. And for, for once, I mean, Chris and I have been trying to do this for, forever on mm. every movie. And Dunkirk is a, is a hugely experimental movie. I mean, mm. I don't think people really realize that Chris went out there and boldly made an experimental movie. Oh, for sure, yeah. That is a commercial success. So mm. don't tell me you can't go and make experimental movies and make them a commercial success. Yeah. Mm. But part of our journey was this. How do we truly not separate the eye from the ear? You know, mm. how, how, how do we really combine the senses? And mm. that if you... if I, the record company will suit me right now, but, <laughs> but I don't actually want people to listen to the music right. apart from the images, mm -hmm. because I think mm -hmm. I think the images absolutely complete the music and vice versa. Right. right. So that that was quite an it was a tough one as well. <laughs> well, uh, we're we're coming down toward the end, but I do want to ask you have to for this you do have kind of a main theme. I guess I'd say it recurs mm -hmm. throughout the seven episodes, at least the ones I've watched. I've only seen four, so I apologize. Um, but that sounds like a really daunting task to come up with something that's going to keep coming back and refer to different images on the screen. So how did you come up with either that main theme or some other themes that maybe recur throughout the program? I, I, I always think, you know, the looming deadline can be <laughs> a great motivator. Fear, fear is a great motivator. <laughs> yeah. Of, you know, and we actually, you know, that's a conversation we've never had. It's like, how do you come up with a theme, Jacob? You, you, you know when it's right. Right. Yeah. You know, a few years back, I found this tape. Remember tape? Like, yeah. <laughs> uh, of 48 different ideas, main themes for The Lion King I'd written. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I'd forgotten all of them. I was sort of listening through them and going, oh, they're, yeah, they're all really, they're, they're all not bad. Yeah. But they aren't it. Mm -hmm. you mean? And you just, you you know when it's, when it is it, mm -hmm. you know, and, and you it's impossible to explain why sure. it is it. Well, let, let, yeah. let me let me try that in a different way then. I yeah. know that when I'm writing and I'm struggling with a passage and I get it right, I'm like, yes. And like I sit up a little straighter and it feels like a burden has been lifted off my shoulders. Is, is that sort of what it's like when you find the right sound? Oh, always, yeah. yeah. And it's right after you think that you're never going to find it. <laughs> At least for me. <laughs> oh, I'm so dark because I go, okay, all right. Yeah, got this bit. Oh, here comes the next problem. That's exactly <laughs> what I was going to say. <laughs> yeah, they never release. Right. It's yeah. just tension yeah, until exactly. the end. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, at the end of our show, we ask all our guests some of the same questions. So I'm going to ask uh, the three of you the same question, and then you can sort of answer it uh, however you like. But the question is, who is the composer you've learned the most from? That you've never met composer or musician you've learned the most from that you've never met that can be alive or dead so if you want to say beethoven you can Jeez. Oh. we'll start with jacob okay um wow i mean it, there's so there are too many i think <laughs> I, I, like bill frizzell there's some approach that he has to music that's that's very i don't know I, when i hear it i just i just hear like an effortless kind of expression and it's, it's not trying too hard. It is what it is and, it, and it's beautiful. Yeah. And, uh, uh, I mean, there are so many other people that I could say, but he was first that came to mind. And, Interesting. uh, I just really love his, his approach to writing and making music. Right. David. Yeah. I don't know. It, it's been, 
I feel like it's a different person for every part of my life. Yeah. There's, yeah. There hasn't been like one <laughs> overarching ones that come to mind. Well, like, you know, when I was a kid, mm-hmm. probably the first person who made me realize that like music could be complex and more than like a pop song. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was, for some reason, when I was 10 years old, I was really into Jethro Tull mm-hmm. and, the, the, yeah. and Ian Anderson. When I, I heard him speaking about writing music mm. in a different way than I'd ever heard anyone talking about writing music. And it mm. made me think, oh, that's, that's a thing. That's, that's not just uh, sitting down with a guitar and bashing out a few chords. Yeah. In the past few years, there's a composer named Moondog who uh, has, he's passed, but he was this really strange, cinematic sounding composer mm-hmm. who all the jazz guys were in love with. Mm. And every single record of his sort of you can tell it's him but it's got like a it's just he's playing with like like Han said it's it's it sounds like play all the time he's he's doing you know an all organ record and he's doing a song of uh, an album of children's songs with Julie Andrews and Mm -hmm. it's it's a really he's a really strange creative guy and I've kind of used that as a a point of inspiration of just like you know do something completely different next time around right great Hans going to be really simple. Mozart. Everything okay. starts with Mozart and ends with Mozart. <laughs> and then Frank Zappa. <laughs> <laughs> Those two. Well, thank you so much for your time, guys. It's great chat. Very well. Thank you. Thanks very much. Listeners, I'm going to try and, and read your mind right now because if there's one thing I'm thinking, it is that you've been listening to this podcast and you've said, you know what? I want to get a website of my very own, and I want that website to be – all right, I'm, I'm thinking here. I'm pretty sure it's lovethemfish.com. I just looked it up for you. It's available. You can get lovethemfish.com. You can make your fish fan site. You can have photos of fish. You can like have like video of fish, just all the stuff you've ever, ever wanted to see about fish on the internet that you can't find anywhere else. You can put it at lovethemfish.com. But you're saying to me, Todd, I don't know how to make a website. I know I love fish, but I don't know how to make a website. So let me tell you about my friends at Squarespace who can help you with that. At Squarespace, they want to help you turn your cool idea, like lovethemfish.com, into a website. You can showcase your work. You can blog or publish content. You can sell products and services. You can promote a physical or online business. You can announce an upcoming event or special project. It doesn't have it. And the talking points here, but you can you can make a fan site about fish with Squarespace. I promise you, you can do whatever you want. They give you these great templates by world-class designers. They've got an e-commerce functionality so you can sell stuff if that's what you want to do. You can customize the look and the feel. You can customize the settings. You can customize the products you have on offer and anything with just a few clicks. It's all optimized for mobile right out of the box. And you can buy your domain. You can buy Love Them Fish and choose from over 200 extensions right there from Squarespace. Plus, you'll get analytics. You'll get built-in search engine optimization. You get free and secure hosting. There's nothing to patch or upgrade ever. And if you have any problems, they have 24-7 award-winning customer support. So it's time to make your website. It's time to make lovethemfish.com. And to do that, to get started on your fish fan site or whatever else you want to build, go to squarespace.com and you can get a free trial. So when you're ready to launch at Squarespace, you use the offer code INTERESTING. That's that's the name of the show, INTERESTING, to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Again, squarespace.com, the promo code is INTERESTING. You'll get 10% off 
of your first purchase of a website or domain, and you can always get a free trial there. So if you just want to check it out, just test it, you can do that. And then when you're ready to buy, the promo code, interesting, 10% off. You're going to love it. My next guests are Orla Doherty. Hello. And we have Mark Brownlow. Hi. And James Honeyborn. Hi there. And you folks are the producers, filmmakers, folks behind Blue Planet 2, Planet, the latest Planet Earth series. And I, I just got to ask, a lot of this stuff I know is done by drones or robotic creatures of some sort mm. nowadays. Have any of you actually been to like the ocean floor, to the bottom of the ocean at this point? Right. No, we, no, we just sit in our offices in Bristol, <laughs> hang out, do it all remotely. <clears throat> Orla's giving me a funny look now because uh, she knows she's just spent 500 hours in the bottom of the <laughs> deepest parts of the ocean. What is it that cameras can never capture about being there? Uh, I think it's the, the the sense of expectation that just about anything might happen. <laughs> you know, if you're if you're at the bottom of the ocean, then you are probably somewhere where no human has ever been before. Right. and possibly where no human will ever be again. And it's a world that we still know so little about mm. that every time I'm down there, I just think, I really don't know what is going to happen <laughs> here today. And that's the sense that the camera won't capture. Yeah, yeah. yeah. These miniseries are meticulously planned, You gotta, but you also have to rely on happenstance. You have to rely on getting the right footage you need. What was kind of the the longest wait you had to to get something that you really needed to make something work? Well, we we set out to film this phenomenon known as the Boiling Sea. Mm -hmm. And it, it uh, takes place in the Pacific Ocean where this bait fish, deep sea fish called lanternfish, come to the surface to spawn and then all these predators pile in. And it's, and it's a story that we heard about from fishermen. Mm -hmm. And it was our very first shoot in the entire series back in October 14. And all is set off off the coast of... Australia to try and film this event and the fish didn't show up <laughs> at all oh wow so mm. three weeks of scouring the coral sea really moving up and down and trying to find we and we were working with scientists as well that really understood this this aggregation that they would that come up to the surface mm. uh, they just didn't come up because what we didn't know at the time was an El Nino event was just beginning and mm. so the sea temperature was warmer than normal and so that was throwing off their cue to come and up to the surface. Mm. And uh, so I came home awfully empty-handed. <laughs> but a year and a half later, El Nino abated, and on the other side of the Pacific Ocean, off the coast of Costa Rica, which hosts its very own lanternfish boiling sea event, we managed to get a helicopter station on a research vessel 20 miles offshore, and we uh, surveyed vast tracts of ocean every day, and eventually we hit upon uh, uh, these, these great events that can be over in 15 minutes. Yeah. But it... It's just an example of how long it can take to, to record just five minutes of cut material. Yeah. It, it, it was a process that, that, that spanned almost two years. Wow, wow. One of the things that I was really struck by is the sequence in the, uh, the second episode about the deepest depths of the ocean where you have a whale fall and all of these creatures come in and scavenge essentially at this carcass of this sperm whale. And like, how could you possibly, how did you get that? How did you find a whale on the ocean floor. Like that seems like a needle in a haystack, even as big as a whale is. Well, scientists have, have studied whale falls because it's it's the cycle of life and mm -hmm. it's it's food landing from the surface to the deep. So scientists have studied these in the Pacific Ocean before, but it's never a study like this has never been done in the Atlantic. And so we worked with the scientists that had 
had led these experiments in the Pacific and with some local scientists in the Azores where the submarine was mm. to try and get a whale to that deep sea floor so that we could return to it over the course of the next year and mm. watch that decomposition. So it was really through collaboration with the submarine team and with the scientists in that area. And, and what was clever was they were able, whilst the whale was still at the surface, to put a pinger on it, a locator oh, on wow. it, so that when it did sink, mm. they were then able to find it on the seabed and return to it multiple times. So over the course of the next year, they made multiple submarine dives to go mm. and see how it was uh, breaking down and returning to the environment. You know, it's a very long, slow process yeah. and one that hadn't been studied before. It was yeah. also really exciting because things happened down there much more quickly than we had anticipated. These six-gill sharks, huge sharks, turned up really fast. And when the submarine first went down, they seemed to see it as a potential food rival <laughs> and started sort of nudging it out of the way and things. Yeah. And, uh, and that's quite a daunting prospect when you're deep as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we've been making movies under the sea for a long time. Obviously, Jacques Cousteau is the mm -hmm. name everybody knows. But what are some things you're able to do now that maybe you couldn't even do 10 years ago when the first Blue Planet was made? There's been a revolution in, in technology, camera te and in particular, the sensitivity of the chips, uh, the camera chips that enable you to film in, in almost complete darkness mm. and still get images. So there's extraordinary scene where the mobile arrays move through these great clouds of plankton, lighting them up. Was, it looks like a scene out of a uh, you know, sci-fi film. Mm. It was only possible because uh, the, the advancements in, in the camera chip technology, actually during the course of the filming, wouldn't, we wouldn't have, they wouldn't have been sensitive enough to film. It was only in the last year of filming that it became good enough for us to film them. Uh, and then equally in the deep, you've, you spent a lot of time with low-light yeah. camera yeah. systems, didn't you? Yeah, to, to, to capture the Humboldt squid, yeah. uh, to film them in their world, right down, you know, 950 metres deep off the coast of Chile. Mm. We're in a big, shiny, nine-ton <laughs> yellow submarine. You know, we're not covert at mm. all, but we wanted to be because we didn't want to disturb their behaviour. Yeah. And so our best shot at it was to use a camera that could almost see in the dark and to use just the tiniest, tiniest amount of light. Yeah. And that meant that we could actually capture the behaviour of them hunting the fish. And then when they run out of the fish, they turn on each other and they start attacking each other. So we got scenes really through that technology. That's an interesting question because in other nature documentaries, let's say we're making a movie about lions, like you're going to mostly just film using the natural sun or, you know, night vision cameras because you're out there in the Serengeti or wherever. How do you approach the question of how much light to bring to one of these underwater scenes where maybe there's very little light or not at all? Well, for instance, we, we try to film this extraordinary worm called, uh, it's a polychaete worm called the bobbit. Mm. And it feeds at night by plucking uh, a passing fish out of the water column and then pulling them under, under, oh, wow. underground. Mm. I mean, they're horrific things. And um, <laughs> we tried to film it first off with white light and they were just put off by by, by the camera lights. Mm. So we had to, in the field, devise an infrared lighting setup. And that actually made all the difference because they can't see in infrared. So we were able to illuminate, although we were filming in pitch darkness, uh, um, through the camera, the cameraman could see the, 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 the bobbit worm hunting. So it's just an example of, of how you have to, to play with, with the, the wavelengths of light mm. in order to get the, these unique pieces of behaviour. Ultimately, you know, we want to be unobtrusive if we're going to get real behaviour. So it's in our interests to, uh, to, to not be noticed. Yeah. What, what are your sort of your best practices for capturing this behaviour, but also like not leaving the environment 
changed in some way, like be like being observers without you think all the time about like time travel stories where somebody's supposed to like not step on an insect mm. or whatever. But it's not this is probably not quite that extreme. But what's how do you like stay there without changing the environment by your presence? You know, well, we were so we you ask us how, how, how this series is different to the original Blue Planet. Well, we had the advantage of using rebreather camera technology. Mm. Oh, sorry, uh, rebreather breathing technology. So, this is ex-military uh, uh, um, system that allows you to recycle the air, and you can and you don't produce bubbles, so you can sit underwater for up to five hours at a time wow. in silence. Mm. And so you can sit and observe and be unobtrusive, and and the the animals accept you. And that's how we filmed Percy the Tuskfish mm. picking up clowns, smashing them against against the coral, yeah. he completely accepted the, the divers because they were making no noise and it, we were able to film this unique behaviours. Mm. Wow. Yeah, a lot of it's about just um, being unobtrusive, looking like you're just another reef creature going about your everyday business and mm. and, and then the fish just don't give you a second thought really. Mm. Uh, mm. So not producing bubbles, not producing the noise of the bubbles, that's all really good stuff. Were you people who had been drawn to the ocean before or did you enjoy diving or anything like that or was this like an assignment that you got into well we all have our stories <laughs> it's a passion though yeah. it's a passion mm. it's a way of life and everyone on our team is a kind of passionate dedicated ocean person really but yeah orla orla let's start with you what sort of brought you to the sea uh the nine years that i spent living on it <laughs> <laughs> wow yeah so i i was a late bloomer with the ocean i didn't really fall in love with it until I learned to scuba dive when I was 30, mm. but the minute I put my head underwater with a dive tank on my back, I was off and that's where I wanted to be. And so I, I then spent the next decade in the Pacific Ocean studying coral reefs. Mm. And then I came back to television, which is what I've been doing before. And that was around the time that Blue Planet 2 was was just coming alive. Right, right. How about you, Mark? Uh I've been making underwater films for, for decades now. I was oh, wow. a producer of the two underwater episodes for the original Planet Earth series. Mm -hmm. I've been making underwater um, series ever since. Mm -hmm. So I just have an obsession with underwater. Mm -hmm. What's uh, what's what makes it a a, a place you? What makes you want to capture those images? Like I, I think because it's just so otherworldly yeah. and so magical, and and also I, I just as a as a filmmaker. If you feel if you make a series about lions, you have to sit in a Land Rover yeah. and, and distance yourself from the subject. In the ocean, you're in there with 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 your subject, mm. uh, and so you have this extraordinary experience and encounters where you feel these massive whales yeah. as they as they feed on uh, on on great shoals of, of of bait fish, and and you get eye to eye with these characters, and it's just an extraordinary experience above me on the, the filmmaking process. Yeah, yeah. And, and yourself? Like Mark, I, uh, I started to uh, dive at the BBC. We've both been working there for 25 years. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you get lots of opportunities. But th that what really opened my eyes to the uh, potential of filming underwater was when I made a, a freediving series with a lady called Tanya Streeter, who was a world champion freediver. Sure. And we got to film uh, this amazing athlete in extraordinary uh, encounters with really big marine megafauna, you know, whales and big sharks and things. And it was iconic and beautiful. And 
it, it kind of inspired me to think, gosh, there's, there really is another world down here. Mm. But it's a world that we so often think of as being alien and remote and cold and hostile and unforgiving. And it is, it can be all those mm. things. But it can also be a world that we do recognize and full of astonishing creatures. And, 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 and I think there's a warmth to the ocean that we're trying to convey in the way that we try to connect people to the characters that live in that world and, and and i would like to think that people will feel closer to that world after watching the series were there places where you could see evidence of humanity's impact on the world that maybe you wouldn't have explained like you think about the the pacific garbage patch or mm-hmm. in episode two again you're down at the bottom of the ocean and there's these coral reefs that have been devastated by deep fishing trawlers uh, so were there places where you saw evidence of humanity's impact on the planet where maybe you wouldn't have expected it. Well, finding that reef, in, and that was just off the Florida Keys, finding finding that destroyed reef, really, we went down there looking for coral mm. because there are more species of coral in the deep than there are on shallow reefs, and that blew even my brains. I mean, it's it's just amazing what's down there. So we were on the hunt for coral to mm. film them and show their beauty, and that's what we found. And so it, it was... We were sort of duty-bound to include that in the film because it was part of our journey of exploration down there. Mm. But, it, yeah, it was, it was shocking. You can't avoid, mm. can you, the, some of the issues that there are out there. And, and it wouldn't be right if you're telling a contemporary portrait of the planet's oceans to leave some of these stories out. So marine plastics, as you say, you know, they're everywhere. Although you, you encountered them in the deep as well, didn't you? Yeah, there's mm. a plastic in, in really the places where you would wonder how it got there, but there it was, you mm. know, that, that's... Mm. There's very few places we've been that we haven't seen our our impact. Yeah, yeah. This is maybe uh, kind of a, a dumb question, but um, when I watch these things, I can't help but like anthropomorphize the animals, and then you inevitably turn into like predator versus prey, and you know you got to you have to show that struggle. How do you sort of balance the inherent drama of the chase, where I think mm. a lot of humans are going to identify with the one who's trying to get away? Mm. Uh, with, you know, the brutality of nature, with the fact that, like, it, there are situations where, you know, the polar bear does eat the baby walrus or something mm. like that. Yeah. Well, I, I think um, we have to be true to nature and mm-hmm. we have to tell the, the real story that's out there. And although we may be filming multiple dramas that take place over, over many weeks, if not uh, over consecutive years, mm. the story that we portray always has to be true to nature. Mm-hmm. And so, for instance, the, the giant fish, the, the leap out of the air, the giant dravati, to pluck uh, uh, um, the, the flying young fledglings mm-hmm. out of the air. The way we, 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 we told that story, we showed that while there are multiple attacks, the majority of birds do make it through. Mm. Yeah. Because that's what happens in nature. Yeah. Yeah. I am thinking about like in, in episode six, which is about the coastlines, there's puffins who are flying out to catch fish and then other birds, I don't remember their names, like will steal their cats. Just like, yeah. Mm. How able are you to like follow one specific bird versus like having to cut together a bunch of footage to show kind of the overall sweep of what's happening. Well, I think it depends on the, on the story. So when we filmed the tusfish, mm-hmm. we filmed the one individual fish, which we, 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 we nicknamed Percy the persistent because he, <laughs> he would take up to 50 times to crack open the, the, the shells. So yeah. in, in many cases we, we were able to film individuals and uh, follow them through their entire journey. Mm. But sometimes we, we would have to be more generic and, and film, as I said, a, a, you know, a scene over many weeks mm-hmm. and then uh, tell a story that of a compilation of images 
through through the editing process. Yeah. But again, as long as, as and we're very careful with the language you use mm-hmm. to, to not be, uh, not to mislead the audience and never say that was an individual when it wasn't. So we're very, very careful about that. Yeah. So um, as long as what you're seeing is represents the process, that's what's important. Interesting. Interesting. What's maybe like a, an animal or a creature that you had n- never heard of before working on this that you were just like really taken with or blown away by? Uh, and Orla, if you, we'll start with you, if you all have answers to that. Barrel eye. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a fish with a jelly head and yeah. that looks through these green tubes and only looks upwards. Um, yeah. Yeah. A really spooky, amazing character. Yeah. yeah. It, it looks like a video game villain, I have to say. <laughs> like <clears throat> something you jump off of. Uh, for me, we discovered a new horror horror film creature called mm. the Bobbit Worm mm. that, that lives in the sand sand flats of Indonesia. Mm. And a knight will come out and, and, and grab passing fish and pull them under the sand to, to mm. devour them. Mm. I mean, they're just horrifically scary, but extraordinary mm. at the same time. Mm. Um, I, we've made a number of new discoveries during the filming, and one of them, uh, is, we've documented the behaviour of this octopus that picks up shells and uses them as body armour when under shark attack. And that sort of really ingenious use of tools for self-defence. Um, octopuses are fascinating creatures. We've got another octopus that goes hunting with a fish, and together they can pretty much flesh out and catch any prey they want mm. uh, by cooperating. But don't forget, an octopus is a mollusk. You know, it's related to snails, and, yeah. and yet it has this incredible brain. And, and and we've seen octopuses jumping out of the water to try and catch crabs. You know, they're, they're such a versatile, extraordinary uh, group of animals. I think they, for me, are really inspiring. Yeah, I, I always say the octopuses will take over if we if we pass on. <laughs> I think, uh, they have what it takes. So that's one of the things that you've mentioned a few times is that like you were kind of on the cutting edge, not just of technology for filmmaking, but for like scientific research. Mm. What What is it sort of like, especially in this kind of unexplored frontier, like what's it like to be there at the edge of new discoveries being made? Uh, I mean, that, that that's what makes this series so different and so exciting because mm. we are telling new stories every time. We're, we're pioneering. And I mean, all the... And her team were the first people to to dive to the bottom of Antarctica mm. to find new new, new extraordinary uh, species. Yeah, so so it's it is utterly groundbreaking. Mm. Yeah, yeah. The when you're going down in the ice in Antarctica, you can hear sort of the creaking and the the shifting of the icebergs. And there's so many places in here. There's a beautiful score. We talked to Hans and, and David and uh, mm. and Jacob earlier today. But there's a beautiful score. But then you do have sequences where it's just the noise that you would hear either at the coast or underwater. And that must have been difficult to capture. How did, how did you capture the sounds and the noises of the environment? Yeah, we have a number of systems to do that. We have a four-way directional hydrophone system mm. that allows us not only to record the sounds underwater, but to, but to pinpoint who's making what sound. It's actually really hard to do that underwater because sound travels so fast, it's, you don't really know where it's coming from. But with this system, you can. And that's enabled us to identify fish that are singing, for mm. example. And then you can tune out the other frequencies, the popping shrimp and things, and listen to the song of a fish on a coral reef at dawn. And that's just kind of crazy and amazing and extraordinary. But also a lot of the cameras we take underwater, they just have microphones on them, and that, and that allows us to get you know, build up a sound design for, for every habitat we're working in. And wh- one of the ones I love is the little suction camera that goes on the back of the sperm whale when it dives into the abyss. 
and and there you ride with the sperm as it dives deeper and deeper and it starts mm-hmm. off chattering away to its calf and eventually the calf can't hold its breath any longer and has to go back up the mum keeps diving down and you hear her going into hunting mode and this amazing clicking then starts and she's she's effectively doing what bats do she's using you know sound to paint a picture of what's happening in the depths as she yeah. goes hunting giant squid um it's just thrilling and amazing to for the first time hear that and witness it and be there with them as they do this yeah yeah mm-hmm. We, we talked a little earlier about misconceptions that maybe viewers will have about the ocean, like that it's not – that it can't be a welcoming place, let's say. What was maybe some of the things that you either didn't know or maybe changed your mind about from the process of working on this, about the ocean, the coastlines, things like that? For me, mm-hmm. I think it's – and I think for a lot, a lot of the audience, we, we weren't we, – we were blown away by the complexity and sophistication and intelligence of marine creatures. So we film – Dolphins that, that know the secret medicinal properties of, of individual corals, mm. and and uh, rub themselves to for, for, to to cure themselves of, of disease and mm. infection. Mm. And we're now scientists are following those dolphins and trying to isolate those particular corals f- for their own uh, uh, medicinal properties that could be applicable to to curing human diseases. So it's, it's things like that. You just think, Christ. Mm. It's, it's it's all happening there. We're just on the on on the, the the cusp of discovering these amazing things. Yeah, yeah. Do either of the other of you? I for me, uh, you know, every everything I learned about the deep ocean was practically new information. Mm. Um, it's such it's still such an unknown, <laughs> undiscovered world. But I think the whole experience of of getting to know the deep and then really trying to communicate what that world's about, how much life is down there, how fast it is. It's just completely transformed my own sense of what the ocean is about. You know, I thought I knew the ocean reasonably well, but Mm -hmm. it turns out I didn't know it at all. Mm. So it's, and that's, that's then changed how I think of the planet. I mean, I now think of this planet as a planet that's mostly made up of deep ocean. That's not a worldview I had four years ago. Mm. So it's, it's really, it's, it's fundamentally changed how I see this place that we live on. Yeah. Yeah, there is that there is that line in the the episode about the, the deep ocean is larger than every other habitat mm. on Earth combined. Mm. <laughs> but well, for me, actually, I think the impact of plastics mm. and sea uh, is something that I hadn't really got my head around in the way that I have now. And it, what we've witnessed in territories where this series has come out already is is a real strong visceral response from the audience to marine plastics you know 75 percent of debris at sea is marine plastics marine plastics break down as they break down they can release chemicals but also um, they actually get ingested by a lot of sea creatures more and more sea creatures we're finding even creatures down at the bottom of the mariana trench being sampled and discovered to find plastic in them so plastic is becoming part of the food chain out there we see it on every shore but what's also really galvanizing to us now as filmmakers is that there's been a big response to this. Just uh, just a couple of days ago, our prime minister was tweeting about plastics with relation to Blue Planet 2. The uh, United Nations re- uh, recently announced a task force to combat ocean plastics inspired by Blue Planet 2. I mean, look, we've just catalyzed the conversa- uh, conversation. There's an awful lot of people who have been campaigning on this for a long time, and we're not a campaigning series. But I think what we have just done is we've witnessed... We've witnessed whales entangled in plastic. We've seen turtles caught up in plastic. We've seen this baby sperm whale playing with a plastic bucket in its mouth. You know, and you just realise it is it's kind of everywhere. And uh, and I think for me that has been a surprising revelation, but it's also an exciting one because we're seeing this really strong response from the audience mm. to want to do something about it. 
Yeah. Yeah. When you say it's part of the food chain now, what do you mean by that? Uh, so, for example, uh, we were talking to scientists who've been studying edible mussels mm. and uh, in the UK, and they've yet to find one that doesn't have plastic within its body. Mm. No. Wow. So uh, whatever eats mussels, including humans, is now ingesting plastic. Mm. Mm. Uh Great. <laughs> Love muscles. When you work on a series like this, do you find yourself despairing at sort of the state of the environment or do you find yourself more hopeful at the idea that like maybe maybe knowing about this will help us and, and will inspire a way to fix it? I think you have to have hope because without hope – what, what, what can you do? Yeah. People have got to believe it's not too late and, and that you can turn things around and, and improve, make improvements. So mm. we have to remain hopeful. And we may, we've met so many inspiring scientists and our whole, our planet, the, the, the episode that all have made, the final episode that addresses these environmental issues. Uh, um, we, they are offering solutions mm. and, and there is time still to turn things around. Yeah. Yeah. And the ocean has an amazing capacity to rebound and recover. And you've seen it even here in California, you've seen it with Monterey Bay, mm. where 50 years ago, it was dead, it was polluted, it was outfished, there were no big sea mammals going back there anymore. And yet look at it today, it's an amazing wilderness spectacle. Mm-hmm. And that just shows the power of the ocean to recover. So we must never lose hope. Mm-hmm. What's the thing that you found in just the individual life that we can do to better uh, better care for the oceans, even if we live nowhere near them. Single-use plastic. If you can avoid buying a plastic bottle and throwing it away, mm. if you use a, a, a you know a, a refillable bottle, for instance, and, and and think about the packaging you use. If if we can reduce the amount of, of plastic that that we consume, that's going to make a big difference mm. to start. Mm. I'm going to very casually take a sip out of my refillable water bottle right now. <laughs> Orla, it looks like you had something to say. Um, I, for me, it's I've I finally made the move that I've been thinking about doing, and just really thinking about where my energy is coming from. I don't consume that much energy, but I consume energy, and it's up to me to choose how it's being made. And we all have that choice. Mm, mm. Interesting. Yeah, it's actually empowering when you think about it because it's those individual choices we all make on a day-to-day basis that mm. make a difference. And, you know, again, we're not a campaigning series, but we are looking at it objectively now and, and we're realising that, yes, there are issues, but we also have the capacity to, to deal with them. Yeah, yeah. What is your favourite? What is, like, your favourite memory, your favourite emotion you take away from this experience of spending that much time in the water? And, you know, even if it's not, like, a specific moment, just, like that feeling of descending or something like that. There's a moment that's in the behind the scenes at the end of the first episode and it's me in the submarine and I'm just kind of staring out of the, through the acrylic and saying, wow. Mm. And for me, that, that that's two seconds of television. It captures my entire four year experience mm. on Blue Planet 2. Yeah. 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 It's been a four year. Wow. Mm. Yeah. I, I was lucky enough to be up in, in the Arctic Circle in Norway and witness this huge, huge feeding event where all these killer whales and humpback whales pile into these huge shoals of herring and you realize that there is still life out there in abundance in in specific pockets yeah and and you can witness these events that that just blow you away yeah yeah yeah, I was with all our, our, when we went to Antarctica to do the deep sub dive and I was topside when they were going down and yeah, I could see these big chunks of ice coming through the uh, through the water channel we were in and, and it was kind of uh, 
we're going to be okay because we're monitoring the situation very closely, but it, you can never let down your guard in yeah. Antarctica with submarines. <laughs> and to see them come up safely, having and I just to see the big beaming smiles on their faces, knowing that they had seen stuff down there that we had never seen before. Yeah. And that was going to surprise people, genuinely surprise people. That was um, That was a real thrill. That is the thing I wonder about. How do you maintain safety in a place where the slightest little thing going wrong is, you know, the human body is not made to live at those depths. Sure. Yeah. Well, well, um, (laughs) you've had a few moments, haven't you? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So we had a leaking submarine in Antarctica Mm. on our very first dive. And we knew that things could be a little bit different because the water is so cold and it was Mm. uh, so cold that one of the seals just didn't work on the sub. Mm. So we were slowly taking on water at 450 meters, mm. which is a long way from the surface. So we got through that because we found out where the water was coming from and the pilot isolated that place and stopped water coming in. And so it was all fine. But the way I see it is you don't you don't really get to be at that frontier. You don't get to be on that edge mm. making that exploration without not taking on risk in without thinking about it. We think about it a lot. We spend most of our time working against all of that risk mm. but because of where we're going to to film what we want to film there's always going to be you're always going to find yourself in momentarily supremely uncomfortable situations yeah 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 well we end every episode by asking our guests some of the same questions i'm going to ask the three of you one question and love to get all your answers to it and the question is what's the last movie you've seen last book you've read tv show you've watched just something cultural that you've taken in and what did you think of it and we'll start with orla i've actually just read Twenty Thousand leagues under the sea oh wow what did you think of that <laughs> it was unbelievably scientific yeah mm-hmm. I, I, I mean there are passages of, of how he writes about the ocean about the deep that are really incredible but actually it was i felt like there were moments where i was reading a biological text yeah it's extraordinary mm-hmm. yeah i love that book yeah, yeah and amazing that i've only just read it yeah <laughs> I'm I'm halfway through reading Homo sapiens. Okay. And to think that humans are actually first and foremost hunter gatherers mm-hmm. and we have been for 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 95% of our history. Yeah. And and to now live in today's modern society you realize that actually it's it's really grounded you realize that our behavioral traits are very much grounded in in another world. Yeah. Yeah. James. Um I saw Interstellar recently again and was just it it just came back to me the sense of how small and fragile and delicate our planet is mm. and it's it it's felt that way to us as an emerging sort of message over the last four years we've been making this just quite how wonderful our planet is because of the oceans the oceans there would be as sylvia earl says no green without blue mm. the, the oceans they give us the uh, so much of the oxygen we breathe they 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 sustain life on this planet and we are this tiny little blip just whizzing through space and mm. and the, you know the oceans play a massively important role in that so we need to look after them yeah yeah well blue planet 2 airs on bbc america orla mark james thank you so much for joining me thank you thanks for having us thank you I Think You're Interesting, sadly, is brought to you on the land, breathing oxygen through my lungs like a mammal does. Disappointment to us all, I know. 
but that means I, I can read you the closing credits, which I know you've been looking forward to. I Think You're Interesting is hosted and executive produced by Todd Vanderwerf. In case you haven't guessed, that's me. Vox Podcasting is headed up by Marty Moe and Jackie Goldstein. Our executive producer of audio is Nishak Kurwa. Our sound designer is Miles Ewell. Our logo design is thanks to Victor Ware, Crystal Stevens, and Georgia Cowley. Our production manager is Alex Ulrich. Our production coordinator is Carrie Clements. Our audio engineering and post-production are thanks to P3 Post. Our studio is also the P3 Post podcast studio in Hollywood, California. Our editor this week was Jarrett Floyd. Our recording engineer is Che Brooks. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this show on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or Spotify or wherever you listen to it. For whatever reason, people have been subscribing at a healthy clip in the last week and we want to see that keep going we we like to hear from you too so that's uh why we like your reviews even if they're saying we're terrible if you have something you want to share that you don't want to put out in a public forum you can email it to me at todd at vox.com or you can email the show that goes to everybody that works on the show at ityi.podcast at vox.com ite.podcast at vox.com or you can tweet at me at tvoti if you feel like shouting into the howling void that is twitter i'll be back next week with somebody who i think is interesting from the world of arts and culture or the world of media and entertainment but until then remember the fish are coming to eat us all Mm -hmm.